Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the ways, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So as we go into step nine, uh, you know, I've been having some thoughts, sort of like just where I'm at with this step. Not really this step, but like where I'm at with my amends. The reason why this came up was there's been two instances where I've, I thought I've run into my, my ex-fiance and this would be the fiance that I, um, I just was not very communicative with, with how deeply my depression had gotten, how, how bad my alcoholism had gotten. Then when I, I, I left, uh, with like an email and moved all my shit out and then didn't really fucking talk too much after that. Then shortly later after that went and, uh, tried to, you know, tried to kill myself there's a lot there. Like there still is not, not weight and pain a little of that, you know, because I I've caused harm that I think is still there and might be there for a long time to somebody that did not fucking deserve it. And so there's a, li- there's a little bit of obviously that. And then there's still just the feeling that I haven't, I don't know how to make that right. And I, the, the reason why this is coming up is I went out to eat with my friends and I swear I saw her in the restaurant that I was at. And I saw her kids, but I didn't know what to do there. I just kind of moved into a different area of the restaurant as we waited for our table and said something to my friend and just let him know, Hey, I think my ex fiance is here. But that was like all I could think to do. Like I didn't try to make eye contact. I didn't want to like, you know, I certainly didn't want to try to try to apologize for all the shit that I had caused while her kids are right there while they're trying to go out to dinner. I hoped she didn't see me because then I don't want that to cause any, you know, I didn't want that to like fuck her evening up or something. The fact that I'm still having to do all that is still is what sort of brought it all up, right? Like I am doing my best to pay this forward and, and have like kind of a, a living a living amends. But there's a part of me that wonders if I should reach out and just let her know that, you know, this was not your fault. I, I mean, maybe she's figured that out on her own. Maybe that causes harm for me to even think that like not think that obviously it doesn't cause harm, but to even think that that might help. Like what if I did that and it just made things worse? I'm still in a very weird gray area with that one. So I just have, you know, been just really doing my best to to focus on the fact that my relationship skills are improving. Uh, the way that I'm communicating is improving. I have been leading a better life since then. I have been treating women with much more respect since then. I have been treating my partners with more respect since then. Part, part of what makes me feel that way I kind of had some affirmation that it was that it that that was true. Uh, a, a couple nights ago, I went out with uh, my weekly like wings thing, and I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a while. She's been kind of in, you know incognito, just sort of off doing her own thing, not really hanging out with groups and stuff like that. This was a friend that I had made when uh, when I had split up with the girl, this girl that I thought you know things were going more in a direction than they actually were. And then when she broke up, I, I just kept messaging her like a fucking weirdo, which was another learning experience. I was just weird. I have talked about that before, which kind of like, yeah, it, on one hand, I feel like in a lot of ways I've made progress and how I uh, have reacted to and treated the, the women in my life as a living amends to the women that I've harmed. But then there's still instances where things have gone poorly. So that living amends, I guess, grows. But This friend is also a mutual friend with my most recent ex, the one that I was with for a little over a year. And they have talked a lot about the breakup. And so she she has not talked to me about the breakup. I thought that was kind of important that while we still remain friends, that I don't talk to her, you know, because I think that it's good that she just have her, you know, my ex is her friends back and, and we can talk later. Like that's how I've kind of viewed it. So we had, we had the talk. It had been a few months at this point. So we talked about, you know, the fact that it happened, that we'd broken up <clears throat> and the fact that um, I just made it really clear that I want nothing but, but the best for my ex. And I was honored to hear that she felt I was in, I was not, not so much like in the right, but that I had handled it well and that she wasn't even mad or upset about the breakup, that she felt that it was actually going to do my ex a lot of good. Um, that in a lot of ways, this was a wake up call that she kind of needed 
and that the, the, the fixes and changes that she was making were for herself and on her own. Really what stuck out was, I mean, all that's very important, but what stuck out was that this person is very opinionated and she will definitely let me know if I fucked up and she would definitely call me on my shit. And she would definitely talk to me if I was, you know, if I had fucked up in a way that was like harmful or disrespectful. And she said, none of that applies. You've done everything exactly right. You handled this as well as you possibly could. And, uh, you know, basically that she was proud of me. And that meant a lot to me. Um, it shows that I've, and I, you know, I've said it a few times already that it shows that I've kind of made a lot of growth in areas that I feel like have always been a struggle for me. But this also felt like, now that I'm looking more into it, like this is this is like I have paid a little bit of that debt, you know, that that living amends off. Not that there's a ledger, but I'm holding up my end of the bargain. I made the promise to myself that this was something I was going to work on and I was always going to improve on. And I have done that. So there's still that part of me that wants to like somehow make it right. Like I don't really I, I think that there's going to be very many times that we just run into each other or whatever. This this ex, the, the ex fiance. But at the same time, like I do wish there was more of a way for me to just like absolve it, like absolve her end. Um, but this is an instance where I just can't do that. I can't risk it. You know, the, that's part of what was talked about in eight and what we're going to talk about in this step nine. Sometimes you just have to you just have to work through that. You, you can't reach out to that person. Be willing to make amends. Now, if she were to reach out to me and initiate that, and I could tell that it was a safe place for us to go over that, I would definitely talk to her. Like, I'm not going to avoid talking to her. But if she has somehow managed to work through this on her own and make amends and like make peace with it, then and, and then I came along and was like, hey, I also want to feel better about myself. So here's my apology, even though that might not necessarily be exactly why I'm doing it. That is a part of it. Um you know, that could, that could cause harm if she's already worked through it. And I just opened up all these wounds and shit. So in this instance, again, this is one of those where I just think it might cause harm. I've talked to my sponsor in the past about it. I still haven't talked to my sponsor, the most recent one I've had in a while. Uh, but ultimately I feel good about the fact that I'm not able to talk to her, but there is still like when I saw her, you know, that brought all that up and then it brought up like other exes, like, you know, I have seen it out in the wild. Uh, but it also, just allowed me to kind of check in like am I holding up my end of the bargain am I really making sure that I'm you know treating the women I'm I'm with in my life with respect that I should have always been treating them uh, and I you know that's true I think that's very true I think it's um you know it's now a pretty common thing for for the women in my life to say good things about me men too when I'm not around you know so yeah there's that there's my little check-in for you guys uh this is step nine, 10, 11, 12. So this is going to be four more episodes and then we're done with the 12 by 12. And then I got to figure out what's next. I still have not really, not really decided. I have kind of an idea. I, I have a couple of things I think I can go over. I don't want to just read other, like I know the, the 12 by 12 and the, the AA big book are other people's books, but I don't want to just read other people's literature and, and not give them some kind of fucking least compens like some sort of compensation or something like that so I'm, I'm really wary about just going through a bunch of other people's books like a workshop kind of thing but there is one in mind that i might consider uh but we'll see we'll see i gotta i got four more weeks to figure this out so for now um let's get into the uh the stoic reading for today well this this stoic reading is kind of a beefy one january 25th the only prize What's left to be prized? This, I think, to limit our action or inaction to only what's in keeping with the needs of our own pre preparation. It's what the exertions of education and teaching are all about. Here is the thing to be prized. If you hold this firmly, you'll stop trying to get yourself all the other things. If you don't, you won't be free, self-sufficient, or liberated from passion, but necessarily full of envy, jealousy, and suspicion for any who have the power to take them, and you'll plot against those who do have what you prize. But by having some self-respect for your own mind and prizing it, you will please yourself and be in better harmony with your fellow human beings and more in tune with the gods, praising everything they have set in order and allotted you. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations 6.16.2b-4a. Warren Buffett, whose net worth is approximately $65 billion at the time of this book, lives in the same house he bought in 1958 for $31,500. 
John Urschel, a lineman for the Baltimore Ravens, makes millions but manages to live on 25000 a year. San, uh, San Antonio Spurs star Kawhi Leonard gets around in the 1997 Chevy Tahoes he's had since he was a teenager, even, even with a contract worth some $94 million. Why? It's not because these men are cheap. It's because the things that matter to them are cheap. Neither Buffett, nor Urschel, nor Leonard ended up this way by accident. Their lifestyle is the result of prioritizing. They cultivate interests that are decidedly below their financial means, and as a result, any income would allow them freedom to pursue the things they most care about. It just happens that they became wealthy beyond any expectation. This kind of clarity about what they love most in the world means they can enjoy their lives. It means they'd still be happy even if the markets were to turn or their careers were to cut short by injury. The more things we desire and the more we have to do to earn or attain those achievements, the less we actually enjoy our lives and the less free we are. So I know what the book's trying to say, but I'm just going to I'm just going to point out that I I'm not a fan of people who hoard wealth in the manner of like people like Warren Buffett who have 64 billion or 65 billion or whatever the fucking other ridiculous amount of wealth he's he's just fucking hoarded over the, the years. In just like a general sense, I think that's ridiculous, especially when now I get it. Yeah. Live, live, live like as if, you know, be satisfied with the things you do have. I, I am very much of that kind of a mindset. You know, I, I will drive a car basically forever. I will, I will make do with the things I can afford and be satisfied with those things. I kind of live, live that way. I have hobbies, unfortunately, that just fucking suck any money that I save from that dry, but I have half the equation down. I, I do find myself very satisfied and very easily pleased with the things that I have, even if they're like, they don't match. They're not the highest quality. You know, I live in a, I live very modestly and I'm really low maintenance when it comes to things like that. I get what the, the book's trying to say there, but if you gave me $65 billion dollars, I'm going to probably, probably buy a different house. You know what I'm saying? Uh, maybe buy houses for other people. Maybe do other things. I wouldn't just hoard my money. I'm not a money hoarder. <laughs> not very good at it at all. Uh, but more than that, I just can't really bring myself to just conceptualize having that much money in and just existing so far out of reality to think that I, I need all that. If I'm living in a house that I that cost me fifty one thousand dollars, fucking you know a million years ago, I I know that I could probably survive off of for as far as retirement goes, never working again, a couple million dollars or whatever. Like I would do the math there. I'm pretty sure sixty five billion dollars is a little absurd and above and beyond. So I don't think this is really like saying the thing that it's meaning to say by using those examples. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, uh, if what I cherish the most and prize the most is my my reasoned choice, right? My thinking. Then um, I need to be satisfied with it, and I I need to not give it to other people. I need I need to not I need to not covet what other people have. I need to be satisfied with what I have, and if I want more, then I need to be able to get it. And I need to be able to have my thing in a way that isn't something other somebody else can just come and take. And when it comes to like my thinking, my thought process, that. That for me is like, that's like the soul of my security, my, my current security. Like I exist, my ego exists in a way that I hope that I can't just give those things away, that somebody can't just come up and take it and change my demeanor and change my reaction and, and alter my day. Uh, that's, that's to me kind of what it's saying when it, when it gives the idea of, you know, having your brain, your mind, your thoughts be your, your prize that you don't give to other people. I can't live in a I can't live in an existence in a world in a, in a mental state where where other people can dictate how I am that the idea of I can't let other people's limited view of me determine who I am as a person but also I can't allow other people to be able to just take my peace and take my my sense of worth and take myself like I can't just I just can't let that happen anymore and ultimately that lies in me I can decide all day long that people are mean and that they're just vengeful and they just want to do harm or whatever other things like, like I hear people say, and I see happen is, you know, they, they have a bad breakup and then all women are terrible or all men are terrible. That to me is letting that person who caused that kind of harm take what should be prized most, which is self like us, what makes us us. And if we find that somebody in our lives does the thing that alters who we are 
in a negative way, then that's what's happening, right? We're letting them take that. That's that's what I'm getting from this. Um, the whole wealth hoarding thing just doesn't really do it for me and uh, dilutes the message because um, I do not see any nobility in just fucking sitting on $65 billion. It's absolutely bananas to me. Anyways, uh, enough political-ishness in that. I will, uh, I will move on now to step nine and tradition nine. Step nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I've already talked a little bit about this. This is a pretty straightforward step. The part to stick with is except when to do so would injure them or others. There's two reasons why it's important, uh, more even than the rest. Um, it says wherever possible, and it says that that last part, which is, I think, honestly, at times, some people use that as a reason to not even bother making it an amends, which is really shitty. But it also just becomes a sticking point like I was experiencing with my ex-fiance. And that's where it's important to work with a sponsor. That's why I'm really a big fan of the sponsor sponsee aspect of this program, of having that person that you can you can bounce this shit off to, and it's not just just rummaging around in the brain, you know, looking for for purchase. You can tell them, hey, I here's what happened, and here's what I want to do. And they can tell you that's a terrible idea, or they can tell you here's how I would approach it. They can at least give you some feedback, and it's somebody that's going to understand this process of of amends that maybe has that insight as to how this might go either through their own experience or through the experience of other sponsees, just generationally, I guess there's also that bit of knowledge of, Hey, you know, try this, use these words, maybe wait this one out, maybe use this as a living amends. It's important. It's important to really lean on that because like for me, there are a few where I think I just kind of, well, it could probably harm them and that may not have been true. It may have just been kind of a cop out. Uh, not saying that that's going to be how everybody goes into this, not saying that everybody's going to have the same kind of response to this, but that's the thing to really push up against. You know, am I avoiding this? Am I avoiding making these amends? And when it says wherever possible for me, it was always important to understand that wherever it's possible for them, it's not wherever it's possible for me. Meaning just because I want to make the amend doesn't mean it's the right time. Doesn't mean it's the right place. Doesn't mean it's the right way. Doesn't mean I'm, doesn't mean I'm ready. You know, it doesn't mean also that I should overthink that part, but it's important to really consider where somebody's at. Like if somebody's just found out, you know, another person's passed away in their family or something like that. Now's not the fucking time to make an amends. If they've just lost their job, if they're having a hard, you know, a breakup, if something's, you know, going poorly, then it might be a good idea to just wait that one out, you know, but it, you know, that means sitting with it and sort of resting on it and not just doing it when you feel ready, but when you feel they are ready as, as much as you can understand how that works. Sometimes you just don't know and you just kind of do the best you can, but uh, it is definitely important to really consider that. This to me was a very difficult step. It, it always has been. I can spend all day talking about myself and how poorly I treated others and own up to that in a way, but I always suffered from the aspect of not putting enough action into those apologies and not actually making it right and not actually making those amends because I'd harmed some people in ways that I just didn't think it was possible to really ever make those amends. I avoided it because my own scorn against myself was definitely something I could handle, but the scorn of others was was not always something I can handle. Good judgment, a careful sense of timing, courage, and prejudice. These are the qualities we shall need when we take step nine. After we have made the list of people we had harmed, have reflected carefully upon each instance, and have tried to possess ourselves of the right attitude in which to proceed, we will see that the making of direct amends divides those we should approach into several classes. There will be those who ought to be dealt with just as soon as we become reasonably confident that we can just uh, maintain our sobriety. There will be those to whom we can make only partial restitution, lest complete disclosures do them or others more harm than good. There will be other cases where action ought to be deferred, and still others in which, by the very nature of the situation, we shall never be able to make direct personal contact at all. You know, for me, it's like my mom. If you knew my story, you would know... On the surface, I shouldn't owe my mom any kind of an amends. But for me, with my mom, just because at times she was not a very good mother doesn't mean that I couldn't have been a better son. I put her through hell. Yes, she put me through hell, but that quid pro quo shit isn't how life should work. 
and isn't how people should work. And just because she did harm doesn't mean I should have returned it. I mean, I was her only son, you know? And even though near the end she was drinking herself basically to death, she had stopped most of the harmful sh harmful shit that she had been doing in the past. And I never just had that conversation with her or tried. And I never really gave her the opportunity uh, to see me at my best. She always said that she was proud of me, but I don't know that that was actually true. In a lot of ways, maybe that may have done me some harm because there were plenty of times where she said that where that just shouldn't have been true because I wasn't doing anything with myself. But when given the opportunity to really show her what I was capable of, I did not really, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of ways of looking at that, but the primary one is that I could have been a better son to her and my amends to her would have been a pretty heartfelt apology in that regard. Uh, but she passed away before I could make that apology before I could fully forgive the things that occurred in a way that I could make that apology and make it make sense. Um, so, you know, that's one of those, like it's talking about, I just kind of have to sit with that one. There's just some things I'm not going to be able to make right. Most of us begin making certain kinds of direct amends from the day we join Alcoholics Anonymous. The moment we tell our families that we are really going to try the program, the process has begun. In this area, there are seldom any questions of timing or caution. We want to come in the door shouting the good news. After coming from our first meeting, or perhaps after we have finished reading uh, the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, we usually want to sit down with some of the members of the family and readily admit the damage we have done with by our drinking. Almost always we want to go further and admit other defects that have made us hard to live with. This will be a very different occasion and in sharp contrast with those hangover mornings when we alternated between reviling ourselves and blaming the family and everyone else for our troubles. At this first sitting, it is necessarily it is necessarily only that we make a general admission of our defects. It may be unwise at this stage to rehash certain harrowing episodes. Good judgment will suggest that we ought to take our time. While we may be quite willing to reveal the very worst, we must be sure to remember that we cannot buy our own peace of mind at the expense of others. Much the same approach will apply at the office or factory. We shall at once think of a few people who know all about our drinking and who have been most affected by it. But even in these cases, we may need to use a little more discretion than we did with the family. We may not want to say anything for several weeks or longer. First, we will wish to be reasonably certain that we are on the AA beam. Then we are ready to go to these people to tell them about what AA is and what we are trying to do. Against this background, we can freely admit the damage we have done and make our apologies. We can pay, or promise to pay, whatever obligations, financial or otherwise, we owe. The generous response of most people to such quiet sincerity will often astonish us. Even our severest and most justified critics will frequently meet us more than halfway on the first trial. You know, and I think that was true too. Like when I did start going down this path and making amends and was showing like real effort, uh, you know, this might've been before the first time I was getting sober and I was doing this. Uh, it, it did help that I had like some time in prison with my sobriety, though I still feel like that may have just been kind of easier because I could exactly go out and drink whenever I wanted to. But, uh, that may have had some part in it, but when I did apologize or make my amends to some of the people that I was able to, the ones that I thought were going to be the hardest to do that with were the ones that seemed to just kind of like, you know, not give me a, a brush off, but usually they were like, you know, one of my family suffered from this or struggled with this, or I struggled with this, or I've worked with people who struggled with this and I just want to see you do better. So that's that. And on occasion, there were times where I thought it was going to go really easy and people were super upset and hurt because they you know, I don't know, whatever the reason was. And almost always they, they still resolved well, but it was interesting to see which ones were the easiest and which weren't. This atmosphere of approval and praise is apt to be so exhilarating as to put us off balance by creating an insatiable appetite for more of the same, or we may be tipped over in the other direction when, in rare cases, we get a cool and skeptical reception. This will tempt us to argue or to press our point insistently. Or maybe it will tempt us to, discour to discouragement and pessimism. But if we have prepared ourselves well in advance, such reactions will not deflect us from our steady and even purpose. It's also something to point out that this is like, while it's an action step, it's also a be prepared step. So, you know, the premise of this is not that you are stalled at step nine until you have fully made all of your amends and can't move forward and more of a, you know make some amends, make the amends you can, 
uh, be prepared, feel that you're prepared, have a plan of action in place for the amends that you do want to make later when you're able to, and not, uh, not just, um, get, get to where, you know, instead of making the amend when you can put it off, you know, deflecting it. So there's, there's just sort of like that. Once you have that in place, then, then you can move on from this step and just, you're always, you could be, I've made amends recently <laughs> for shit that happened years ago. So it's, it's one of those, you just have to be prepared for this. That's what this step is. It's packaging all this stuff up, putting it in a nice bow so that you can hand it off to the people that need it when you are in that place that it's uh, the best time. After taking this preliminary trial at making amends, we may enjoy such a, a sense of relief that we conclude our task is finished. We will want to rest on our laurels. The temptation to skip the more humiliating and dreaded meetings that still remain may be great. We will often manufacture plausible excuses for dodging these issues entirely, or we may just procrastinate, telling ourselves the time is not yet, when in reality we have already passed up many a fine chance to right a serious wrong. Let's not talk prudence while practicing evasion. As soon as we begin to feel confident in our new way of life and have begun, by our behavior and example, to convince those about us that we are indeed changing for the better, it is usually safe to talk in complete frankness with those who have been seriously affected, even those who may be only a little or not at all aware of what we have done to them. The only exceptions we will make will be cases where our disclosure could cause serious harm. These conversations can begin in a casual or natural way, but if no such opportunity presents itself, at some point we will want to summon our own courage. Head straight for the person concerned and lay our cards on the table. We didn't wallow in excessive remorse before those we have harmed, but amends at this level should always be forthright and generous. There can only be one consideration which should qualify our desire for a complete disclosure of the damage we have done. That will arise in the occasional situation where to make a full rev uh, revelation would seriously harm the one to whom we are making amends, or quite as important, other people. We cannot, for example, unload a detailed account of extramarital adventuring upon the shoulders of our unsuspecting wife or husband, and even in those cases where such a matter must be discussed, let's try to avoid harming third parties, whoever they may be. It does not lighten our burden when we recklessly make the crosses of others heavier. This was a, a important one too, because there was harm, you know, that I had done to people that they just were not aware of. And in those instances, that's when I talked to my sponsor and be like, should I, you know, making this amend could harm cursor, people that just weren't involved. They could end up harming other people down the road. That doesn't mean I didn't go to my sponsor and like, Hey, uh, so I cheated on, you know, this person and, you know, it's going to cause people a lot of harm if they find out about it now. Can I just, you know, fucking live with that? Sometimes your sponsor is not the person you, you can really go to with that. And you really need to consider seeking outside help and asking somebody a little bit more trained in these matters. Hey, what should I do next? And really considering like the possibility that you, you can't handle hiding that. Right. So would that make it more, would that later on cr create kind of a situation where Instead of it being an amend, now it's turned into this snowball effect, you know, of of just, I guess it's kind of hard to explain what I'm saying here. But if you have the opportunity to, to make an amend, you find out that that amend is going to harm some people and you don't make that amend, you know, it's going to just sit there and become something bigger that later comes out in a harmful way or later turns into a harmful thing. If you go about making all these amends and then your wife finds out that you did cheat on her, uh, through someone else and she knows that you are in a process of making amends with all these people and that wasn't on your list that's the kind of stuff that you need to kind of work through and talk about um, but if somebody at work doesn't know that you did a thing that like fucked them up somehow and you can work that out with your sponsor to where you're like okay you know here's what i'm going to do instead that's kind of the living amend thing there's there's some instances where that just doesn't do any good to go to someone and be like, hey, I, you know, f fuck you. Here's how I messed your day up two weeks ago uh, and you've moved past it and everybody else is not really even concerned with this, but just thought you should know that's all just to make you feel better. And now they're left not feeling better. You know, that's different. That's a different thing. And that should be definitely handled with care. Many a razor-edged question can arise in other departments of life where this same principle is involved. Suppose, for instance, that we have drunk up a good chunk of our firm's money, whether by borrowing or on a heavily padded expense account. Suppose that this may continue to go undetected if we say nothing. 
do we instantly confess our irregularities to the firm and the practical certainty that we will be fired and become unemployable? Are we going to be so rigidly righteous about making amends that we don't care what happens to the family and home? Or do we first consult those who are to be gravely affected? Do we lay the matter before our sponsor or spiritual advisor, earnestly asking God's help and guidance, meanwhile resolving to do the right thing when it comes clear, cost what it may? Of course there is no pat answer which can fit all such dilemmas, but all of them do require a complete willingness to make amends as fast and as far as may be possible in a given set of conditions. And it's not, This is almost done, but something that's not really being mentioned is what it does talk about in the book that I do think is really important is if you making an amends can send you to like jail or prison and then therefore unable to provide for your family, seek legal help. I'll say that again. Seek legal help. Do not allow your sponsor to tell you how to handle that. Don't. In these cases, in that instance, the smart thing is to seek legal help. You could feel that you need to make amends to your wife, your ex-wife, and it could cost you your custody of your children. How on earth could that be better? Seek legal help. Sometimes it is a different thing to look for another. It's just a better thing to look for another way to work through that amend than to put yourself and other people in a position to not have you as a, as a part of their life or their family. So definitely seek legal help. The other thing that my sponsor reminded me is a part of these amends is financially related. I had a lot of debt during my drinking and a big part of me uh, making amends in life was to finally set some of that debt correct. I thankfully had already started working on old, old debt and working on, uh, you know, crediting stuff, people that were owed that kind of money. So really all I really had left were credit cards and stuff that were current, but they were still stacking up. Like it it just wasn't getting, it wasn't something I was getting ahead of. So being able to do that recently was a huge weight off my back. I feel confident that I have paid off a lot of those actual debts. Now, what that means is that I have to look at um, also debts I might owe other people, not just, not just like creditors and stuff. So in this case, um, you know, I'm going to try to do something really, really nice for my grandparents. I can't probably ever pay them back for all they've given me and all they've done for me, but I'm hoping to be able to pay them something, you know, take, I, I take them out to a nice dinner and, uh, make sure their house is taken care of, you know, help them pay off whatever I can, you know, just something small that I don't just something. Um, cause they've given me thousands and thousands of dollars worth of things over the years. And yeah, they probably didn't expect some of that back, but maybe some of that should have come back to them. I don't know, but that, that to me is a debt I owe an amend I need to make. So, you know, all that's very important to me and is included in this step nine. And it doesn't really say that, but, um, I think I should, I should make that clear. You know, the, the creditors, uh, are definitely included. Above all, we should try to be absolutely sure that we are not delaying because we are afraid. For the readiness to take the full consequences of our past actions and to take responsibility for the well-being of others at the same time is the very spirit of Step 9. Tradition 9, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. I mean, this was pretty straightforward too. It still falls back on the other ones where we, you know, we don't like, we, we don't have a hierarchy of, of management and corporate style, like, you know, flow charty type stuff. And in the vein of the, the surface boards, you know, at first it was just like, I think a pamphlet that went around or like, you know, some sort of a newsletter or something like that. The grapevine kind of helped with that sort of service board. Like here's what's going on, but now it's, it's online. We have a huge service board online uh, where you can at any time find all of the meetings in your area and be listed as a meeting when you're made quote unquote, quote unquote official in, in the area. And that to me is what that really was supposed to be like this, this idea of you wrote in, you needed information. They sent you the information you wrote in, you requested your, uh, your meeting get listed. It became listed and it became put in one of the little pamphlets that get hands headed around that has a list of phone numbers that you can put, you know, a place to, to do that kind of stuff in the back, you know?
When Tradition 9 was first written, it said that Alcoholics Anonymous needs the least possible organization. In years since then, we have changed our minds about that. Today, we're able to say with assurance that Alcoholics Anonymous, AA as a whole, should never be organized at all. Then, in seeming contradiction, we proceed to create special service boards and committees which in themselves are organized. How then can we have an unorganized movement which can and does create a service organization for itself? Scanning this puzzler, people say, what do they mean, no organization? This, I I mean, for me, this is like a, a pretty straightforward concept. You know, the, the organizational aspect of AA is really diplomatic. It is sort of crippled by diplomacy in a lot of ways, but it is uh, very diplomatic. Most of the effects that happen, most of the things that, that, that happen and be, the changes that are made are of the people. People voted on that. People bring it to the G- GSR. Uh, they bring it to the, the other general services groups that happen. They, they take it up the chain, so to speak. But sometimes that also means that it is slow. Making changes can be super slow well let's see did anyone hear ever hear of a nation a church a political party even a benevolent association that had no membership rules did anyone ever hear of a society which couldn't somehow discipline its members and enforce obedience to necessary rules and regulations i hate that they worded it that way what a terrible way of wording something like this (laughs) like forcing obedience Ugh. Uh, doesn't nearly every society on earth give authority to some of its members to impose obedience upon the rest and to punish or expel offenders? Therefore, every nation, in fact, every form of society has to be a government administered by human beings. Power to direct or govern is the excess, uh, the essence of organization everywhere. Yet, Alcoholics Anonymous is an exception. It does not conform to this pattern. Neither its General Service Conference, its fed, uh, Foundation Board, nor the Humblest Group Committee can issue a single directive to an AA member and make it stick, let alone met out any punishment. I don't know how true that is. I have seen, I have seen people, in I guess a way, be punished. I'm not saying that like the hierarchy came down and were like, you there... You fucked up. But I've mentioned before, like there are people that go just above and beyond predators. There there was a group of, of people that fucking ran a cult out of the AA organization and, you know, they had to be removed. So there is some of that power. What what this ultimately means, though, is like if you have a bad share or something or you're, you know, meeting sucks, I guess, if you want to word it that way, they're, they're not going to come down and be like, you need to get out of here. What I said before about like financial gain of this organization, how that works, they don't sit there and hover over the books and say this group in this meeting is not meeting the financial requirements and therefore uh, it, it is um, they're they're failing. We need to go have a talk with them. We need to kick them out. None of that. None of that happens. That's why when people talk about this being a business and like somehow a pyramid scheme is like, well, it's a real fucking shitty one. Really honest, this is a big, big, big indicator of how shitty it would be because there is no man in charge. There is no people really in charge. Now, that being said, unfortunately, there has been a case of stuff not really going that way. When Secular AA was in Toronto, the the groups up there kicked the Secular AA groups out. They removed them from their service boards. They did not allow them to register themselves as AA groups. It was a huge deal. And that is a, that is an instance where the forced obedience was a thing that they were going for. And it sounded like they had some support from the general services offices here. Now, I don't know 100% how that's all gone down lately. I think they do have some secular meetings and stuff up there. But it was a big, big fucking ordeal. And it really probably caused a lot of harm to people that just wanted to get fucking sober. So, you know, there's been instances more recently where that's just you know what they're saying here is mostly true it is fucking 90 percent true but not 100 percent true we've tried it lots of times but utter failure is always a result groups have tried to expel members but the banished have come back to sit in the meeting place saying this is life for us you can't keep us out again not true there's been people i've seen them maybe they go to a different meeting you can't fucking like out some you can't like put a poster up in all the meetings but they can be expelled if somebody's being disruptive they could be expelled like that's not 100 percent. not really painting quite the right picture i think with this committees have instructed many in aa to stop working on a chronic backslide or only to be told 
how I do my 12-step work is my business. Who are you to judge? This doesn't mean an AA won't take advice or suggestions from more experienced members, but he surely surely won't take orders. Who is more unpopular than the old-time AA full of wisdom who moves to another area and tries to tell the group here there how to run its business? He and all like him, who view with alarm for the good of AA, meet the most stubborn resistance or worse, still laughter. You might think AA's headquarters in New York would be an exception. Surely the people there would have to have some authority. But long ago, trustees and staff members alike found they could do no more than make suggestions and very mild ones at that. They even had to coin a couple of sentences which still go into half the letters they write. Of course, you are perfect liberty to handle this matter any way you please, but the majority of experience in AA does seem to suggest. Now, that attitude is far removed from central government, isn't it? We recognize that alcoholics can't be dictated to individually or collectively. At this juncture, we can hear a churchman exclaim, They are making disobedience a virtue. He is joined by a psychiatrist who says, Defiant brats, brats. They won't grow up and conform to social usage. What? What psychiatrist would say that? Most psychiatrists would probably think that this is a fine idea. I mean, this is what, like, there's schools that revolve around this sort of diplomacy. When would diplomacy not be a good idea to psychologists? What a weird fucking argument or sentence to write. The man in the street says, I don't understand it. They must be nuts. But all these observers have overlooked something unique in Alcoholics Anonymous. Unless each AA member follows to the best of his ability our suggested 12 steps of recovery, he almost certainly signs his own death warrant. Ugh. His drunkenness and disillusion are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from his personal disobedience to spiritual principles. Okay, yes, in some regards, I kind of understand or at least respect what they're trying to say. I am so far removed from the idea that we are telling people, uh, do AA or die kind of bullshit, which is sort of like in line with what they're saying here. Like, you know, we're confining someone to death if we send them away. In some regards, I think it's just doing more harm to ever do that. And that's why I get really upset when people make it so that others feel uncomfortable when they come to a meeting. Now, they shouldn't be made to feel that this is the only choice that they have, but they should be made to feel that this is a an acceptable choice that they can make at all times. If someone feels like this is what's going to get them sober and they don't feel like they have any other options, then we can't let them feel like we can't make an atmosphere that that makes it so that it is not comfortable or safe or that they're not respected because then they might feel like they have no other choice. But we also can't like live in this sort of uh, role reversal where we, where we tell people, if you don't do this, you'll die. That I don't, I will not accept. That's not okay because it will stop people from exploring things that are going to work better for them and stop people from exploring things that maybe are better suited for their situation. Cause AA is not, they don't have a monopoly on this shit and they are not the only solution and the only choice. And I think a lot of people stop looking. <sighs> Anyways, the same stern threat applies to the group itself. Unless there is approximate conformity to AA's 12 traditions, the group too can deteriorate and die. So we of AA do obey spiritual principles, first because we must, and ultimately because we love the kind of life such obedience brings. Great suffering and great love are AA's disciplinaries. disciplinarians. We need no others. So and I, I kind of am picking up what they're saying. As long as they follow the rules that they've set out, then the AA program is going to continue to run. And then people don't have to come down and say, you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong or whatever. But at the same time, it does create people in the meetings that are constantly pointing out when things aren't going 100% exactly to plan. And they'll use shit like this as like a reason that you can't say this or you can't do that. And that to me is fucked. They can, they can get fucked. I'm serious. I'm so tired of that kind of like idea. I get living along some of the lines of the AA like principles that have been set, set out because I mean, the program has persisted over the years for a reason. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that this stuff was taken seriously and has been followed for the most part. I just also think it does create kind of like these power mad folks that just want to fucking somehow find one way of ruling and they'll find a way to rule using this as an extension if they can. So there's still a little aspect of, you know, do we what we tell you or you'll die, but also you can do whatever you want. And yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, ultimately, yeah, if you're following these steps, you know, following the, the, the main traditions, like my the secular group I used to go to, 
it's very it's barely an AA meeting. Very little of an actual AA meeting exists in there outside of the format. And it it really rankles people that are used to traditional meetings, even though it's essentially the same. And it they will say things to us that are like, You're doing it wrong, you're all gonna die. And it just hasn't fucking been the case. It's not how that works. It is clear now that we ought never to name boards to govern us, but it is equally clear that we shall always need to authorize workers to serve us. It is the difference between the spirit of vested authority and the spirit of service, two concepts which are sometimes pulls apart. It is in this spirit of service that we elect the AA's group info, group's informal rotating committee, the Intergroup Association for the Area, and the General Service Conferences of Alcoholics Anonymous for AA as a whole. Even our foundation, once an independent board, is today directly accountable to our fellowship. Its trustees are the caretakers and expediters of our world services. So, yeah, I mean... If you've ever been to a meeting, then you know that there's service positions inside the meeting. You you get kind of voted in. Um, then there are positions uh, outside of the meeting. There's the GSR. There's like um, hospitals and institutions, and you, and you become like kind of a liaison. And then there's there's service positions that are of the greater group. You know, because your group, your meeting might be in a group, and then that group is in a, in a region, and so on. So there's, there's all these positions that you can get involved in. There's also, aside from that, uh, there are, there are the paid positions that I've explained before that typically are positions that don't necessarily involve AA as a group of drunks, making drunks, not drunks, and more like bookkeeping and stuff like that, that it, it is important to have someone of, 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 you know, experience doing. Um, then there's positions like the archiver and librarian and stuff like that. Uh, now what's interesting about that is you, anybody in AA can apply to have access to the archives. The, the access to the archives is made available with some, um, you know, some observation. You can't just show up and then let yourself in because some of this stuff is old man. it's old stuff and they don't want any of it coming up missing or any of it to come up, you know, harmed in some way. So you apply and then you can go in and look at all this old history of AA yourself. Literally anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous can do this or even outside. I think like just, just anybody can go and apply for this and then get let in. And it's not a huge process. Just most people think it is. And so they don't. Uh, but I was listening to this podcast with a guy who is a huge AA historian has read a lot of this stuff and has set a lot of like, story straight over the years how a lot of this stuff has come about and what it you know what's actually being stored in there and he was like so surprised at how easy it was to gain access to this stuff so i i recommend to anybody who has the ability to go out to i think it's in akron still maybe it's in new york to go and, and apply and go check this stuff out i i kind of hope to someday just to kind of get a little sense of the history see what's actually in there so you know check it out like if you're if you're interested just as the aim of each AA member is personal sobriety, the aim of our services is to bring sobriety within reach of all who want it. If nobody does the group's chores, if the area's telephones ring unanswered, if we do not reply to our mail, then AA as we know it would stop. Our communications lines would, with those would need our help would be broken. AA has to function, but at the same time, it must avoid those dangers of great wealth, prestige, and entrenched power which necessarily tempt other societies. Though Tradition 9 at first sight seems to deal with a purely practical matter, in its actual operation, it discloses a society without organization, animated only by the spirit of service, a true fellowship. So there you have it, another little piece of what makes the organization of AA tick in a way that allows it to continue to, you know, grow and expand and be the thing that it is. You know, I, on paper, man, the program is fantastic. Everything about it's fantastic. And what I also, what I need to really remember is at times when it's not, is it's because of the people. There's so many people involved. Of course, there's going to be people that are going to take this sort of stuff and like try, try and find a way to twist it and grasp, grasp power and, you know, do, do this or that with it. And then somehow the organization continues to exist uh, basically unharmed from that. And to exist in its own way uh, without that being, I don't know. It just, I, this is a, an example of um, personalities 
conflicting with what the program is meant to be. When when you can look in at a group and you know that you've, I'm sure people here have gone to a meeting and been like, this is this is making me feel uncomfortable because this is not what I feel like this meeting should be like. This is, a, you know, almost a perversion of the, the organization. There's, there's just something off about this. I've been to meetings like that. They won't survive. They never do. They never last long. You know, they always end up sort of falling by the wayside because they aren't following at least the very basic mindset of the organization. And again, as I've said before, there's there's also people that are able to use the wording in these books as a way of twisting things so that people feel like that this is their only choice and they're going to die if they do anything else. And that's where I start having issues. And sometimes the book actually says that Bill takes a lot, takes a lot of that back. But I don't know. Like, I do really appreciate the stuff that they've done, the foundation they've laid, the way that they've helped so many people. Uh, but it's just that aspect, you know, pe- people should feel like this is just another tool in their toolbox and, and they should be made to feel that this is their choice. And a lot of times when they use those kind of words, like do this or not, you're going to fucking die if you don't, that's, that doesn't make it feel like a choice. So it's weird that that persists even in this step, this tradition. But that is the nature of the program, man. That's just how some of this stuff is worded. Because people felt so desperate that this was the only thing that worked for them, so it must be the only thing that works. I wonder what Bill Wilson would think of like smart recovery and even calorie recovery. I think he would dig calorie recovery. Bill Wilson is a weed smoker. He would definitely be smoking weed. You know what I mean? If he were to get sober right now, the way that he was drinking before, he'd be a weed smoker for sure. Or a psilocybin dude, you know? So... Anyways, um, that's that. You again, you can you can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA, and you can reach out to me via uh, Gmail at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. Um, I respond pretty much immediately to messages and do my best to check in on folks uh, from time to time. If you have any questions or concerns, or you're just not happy with what I'm saying, or you are happy with what I'm saying, if I have managed to help you in some way, uh, let me know. All that stuff is a huge help, even if, you know, like, it's not the kind of help I think I need most of the time, though. It's been great news hearing from people who have, you know, gotten some relief and found a way of looking at this program in a way that that helps them. And that's all I've ever wanted. So I appreciate all that. I appreciate all of you. And thanks for keeping me sober one more day. 